Number 296. Our powerful, present God is also our intercessor. 296.
Okay, this evening uh, we have Lavelle Byler for our, for our opening and Sam Byler for our children's class. And Alfie will introduce our speaker and we'll hear Brother Dean again tonight. Good evening and greetings to each of you this evening. It's good to be here again tonight. Thank you, Virgil, for those songs that go along well with the, the topic that I have been given. If you were to ask, if you were asked to name a prophet from the Old Testament, you might say Elijah or one of many. If you were asked to name a priest, one of the first to come to mind might be Aaron. And for us, Dave, and for many of us, David would probably be the first king that we would name. But my devotional tonight is about Jesus being all three of these, a prophet and a priest and a king. As we go, we'll look at each of these descriptions individually and how Jesus is each of them. And then we'll also see how they all tie together and how they all tie together in their descriptions of Jesus. I took some of the thoughts for this devotional from several websites, some articles that I read on Christianity.com, gotquestions.org, and crossway.org just by way of... Uh, giving credit where credit is due. Each of these three offices were things that people were usually anointed for. Um, the Bible records many times where a person was anointed as a prophet, a priest, or a king. In Luke 4, Jesus reads the prophecy from, prophecy from Isaiah 61 that talks about what he was anointed to do. And I'm going to read some of the verses from Luke 4, verses 16 to 21. Feel free to follow along in your Bibles if you would like to. Luke 4, 16 to 21. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he hath, he hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears." This passage mentions things that could be applied to all three of these offices, prophet, priest, and king. He was preaching and healing, setting at liberty, or setting, setting people free from various types of bondage. We'll now look at each of these things individually, at prophet, priest, and king, in their context in scripture, and how they apply to Jesus. First of all, the prophet. The role of the prophet in the Old Testament was to speak the word of God, some would foretell events that were going to happen in the near or distant future, but they would also tell and speak God's truth to the people that needed to hear it. A few examples, we have Elijah telling Ahab that there was not going to be any precipitation for an extended period of time. Jonah told the people of Nineveh that they would be destroyed in 40 days unless they repent, and several generations later, Nahum went and told the people of Nineveh that they were going to be destroyed and brought comfort to the Israelites that their enemies were going to be destroyed. Micah foretold where Christ would be born, 
Isaiah foretold things about Christ's first coming and about his sufferings. Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream and foretold future events, some of which have not happened even to this day. And many other things that some of those wrote about and other ones that I did not mention. Foretelling and, and foretelling God's word to the people. In Acts 3, it mentions the fulfillment of prophecy that Moses made in Deuteronomy 18 concerning Jesus. Acts 3, 22 to 23. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. The passage in John 1 is one of my favorite passages, and here it talks about Jesus coming not only to speak the word of God, but he, he was the word of God, not just when he came. He was the word of God uh, previous. Um, I'm just going to read a couple verses from John 1, uh, skipping around a little bit. John 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And it goes on, talks about in some of the verses how he came to his own and they didn't receive him. Uh, Jesus quoted verses where in relation to going to Nazareth, he was not accepted in his own country, which was often the case for prophets, a prophet not being accepted in their own country. And then verse 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Next, I'm going to look a little bit at the, the office of priest. Old Testament priests served as mediators between humans and God. It was the priests who offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. Within that priesthood was a single high priest. He alone offered the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement that cleansed the people for one year. Jesus not only fulfilled the role of the priest, but he exceeded the role of the high priest by removing our sins forever. And I'm going to read some verses from Hebrews 10, verses 11 to 22. Hebrews 10, starting to read in verse 11. And every priest, every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away our sins, take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water." And I find the, the contrast here really meaningful where it talks about how they had to daily offer sacrifices. Every priest in it daily, offering the same sacrifices for years and years they were doing that daily. And Jesus came, made one sacrifice for our sins forever. And the phrase in verse 14 there where it says, by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. That's part of what stands out to me, especially there in his priesthood. 
In several of the Gospels, the first thing it says after Jesus died is the, the thing about the veil of the temple being torn. And I'm going to read just a couple of verses from the account in Mark. Mark 15, 37 and 38 it says, And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost, and the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. This was to show the access we have to God through the, medi the mediation of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And that brings us to the passage in Hebrews 4. I think some parts of this passage we heard uh, just last evening. Hebrews 4, I'm just going to read verses 14 to 16. Seeing that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That passage is especially meaningful there where Jesus can relate, was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin, and he gave us that access to the, the throne of grace. While studying for this devotional, I was reading some about the Muslims and what they believe concerning Jesus, and they believe that he was a prophet. This part of him being a prophet uh, would be something that, that they believe in, even one of the greatest prophets, but they do not believe he was the priest, was a priest or a king. For us as Christians, Paul sums it up well in 1 Timothy 2.5, where he says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. All right, a little bit about Jesus being the king. In the Old Testament, God didn't want Israel to have a human as their king. The lineage of kings and the many things that go with that, if we read in the, the books of the kings, how the king's kingdom passed from one to the other sometimes by the previous king being murdered and all the horrible things that went on um, under the leadership of some of those kings. But that lineage of kings, God was allowing his people to have what they asked, to be like other nations, and they had to accept the consequences that came with it. In 1 Samuel 8, 7, when they were asking for a king, God told Samuel, they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. God knew the dangers of men ruling over men. Prophecies came forth later, paving the way for the restoration of the true king, who was God himself in Jesus, the son of David. Speaking of David, the office of king in the Old Testament was illustrated well by David. God called David a man after his own heart. He promised David that his kingdom would last forever in 2 Samuel 7:16, when he said, and thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee, thy throne shall be established forever. This promise was fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah, who was a descendant of David. The kingdom was also prophesied in Isaiah 9, 7, where it says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever." The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The Virgin Mary was also given the kingdom promise in Luke 1 when she was told that she was going to be the mother of the Messiah. Luke 1, verses 31 to 33. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and his, of his kingdom there shall be no end. 
I'm also going to read several verses from Revelation that talk about Jesus being king forever. Revelation 19.16, And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation 11.15-17, to 17, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast, wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. Seeing this threefold office of prophet, priest, and king helps us recognize the different aspects of Jesus' saving work. It also helps us recognize that all his work is saving. It may be easy to think that the primary way that Jesus rescues us of the primary way of these three is by being a priest because of the book of Hebrews says Jesus has offered himself as the one true sacrifice to make atonement for our sins. But Jesus is our savior in all three of the offices. Sin makes us unclean and unfit to come into the presence of a holy God. Christ, the priest, cleanses us from all sin, like it says in 1 John 1.7. Sin also has the ability to enslave us, making us servants of the evil one. Christ, the king, has the power to break the hold of sin and the devil, sign our pardon, and help us become servants of righteousness instead. Sin also blinds us, making us fools that cannot see the truth of the gospel. Christ, the prophet, speaks his word to us, removing the veil from our eyes so we can behold him in his glory. In closing, I'm going to read three verses or parts of verses from different places in the New Testament that name Jesus as a prophet, a priest, and a king. And these are from different spots jumping around. I'm just going to read them as one continuous reading. Then those men, when they had seen the miracles that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth that prophet that should come into the world. The forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the last verse, when Jesus was being tried, and Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? Of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your blessings to us. Thank you for another night of Bible school this evening. And just thank you for the work of Jesus. Thank you that he came as a prophet to speak forth your word as a priest to enter into the holy place once and for all that we can have access and as a king and that he is our king of kings and lord of lords today and will be that forever. I just pray that you'd bless Brother Dean as he shares tonight and the rest of us here together that we could be drawn to you and blessed and that we would um, go forth from this week of Bible school and be able to put to practice things that we have heard. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This time the children may come forward for children's class, and I think Sam Byler is the one that will be sharing with them tonight. So children, come on up. Well, 
Good evening, boys and girls. Good evening. How are you tonight? Are you excited for another evening of Bible school? Of course, right? Who remembers what we talked about the other evenings? Can anybody tell me what we talked about on Sunday night? Does anybody know? Yeah. Being a light for Jesus? Yep. How about Monday night? Let's have a little bit of a review here. Remember Lamar came up here with his, what did he have? Weapons. Yeah, our weapons to fight for Christ. And then Wednesday, we were, let me see, help me out here. What were we doing Wednesday night? Yeah. Cheerful obedience, that's correct. And then, now that was Tuesday night. Then Wednesday night, we were fishing, right? Last night, we were fishing. So, tonight, I would like to talk a little bit about um, how we can do all those things. Do any of you have any ideas on how we can be cheerful? Cheerful and obedient and not go fishing in the bottom of the sea where all the dirt and mud is or go after the flashy things. Anybody have any ideas? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So when we ask Jesus to be our Savior, what happens? What do we get that can be a helper for us? Yes. Go ahead. The Holy Spirit. Yes. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. So with God in... Uh, John, or Mark 14, 36, when Jesus was praying in the garden, do you remember what he prayed? He prayed this, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Did you know all things are possible for God? That means nothing is impossible. He can do all things. Truly I say to you, only with difficulty, no, I'm, I'm sorry, Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And in um, in let's see, Matthew nineteen, when he was talking to the disciples about uh, the rich man going getting into heaven, they. Uh, likened it to a camel going through the eye of a needle. Do you think that's possible? No. But what did God say? This is what Jesus said. Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man, rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then in 26... But the disciples were like, well, how, who can then be saved? And then Jesus said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So 
As we go about our day, let's remember that. With God, all things are possible. Anyway, I have a bag here, and I have some stuff in here to show you, maybe and give you a little bit of an illustration of how everything is possible, or with, with something to help you, it is possible. So first, let's see what we got. Oh, I got some soap. It's really sharp on the tip, right? No, not really. Uh, I got a balloon. Let's see what let's see what we can learn with this balloon. So This soap is always here. Now I'm going to take a little bit of this. Rub it on the end of the balloon. What do you think is going to happen now? Yeah. impossible and made it possible by adding something or by using a little bit of soap if you would if you want to look at you could look at that as the Holy Spirit helping you it makes anything possible what else do we have in here huh, how about a soda can do you think I can smash this soda can with my bare hands yeah you think so yeah. here you want to try it just push it together should I have another one? You weren't pushing straight. So, if you push straight on like this, you can push almost as hard as you want, and it won't go. I think I can even stand on it. You don't think so? Whoops. I did this this afternoon, and it didn't. 
It didn't collapse, but anyway. So, it is really hard to smash a soda can if you go straight on, but one way that you can do it, if you know how to do it, is you twist it first, and then you can just smash it really easy. Just like that. So with a little, little bit of knowledge, and, know, and knowing a little bit how to do it, you can, all, you, can, you can then smash the soda can with just your bare hands. I did it on the floor with my foot, but you can also do it with the bare hands. Now, how about one more? What is this, what is this telling us? Or what is this an illustration of? Do you remember? What? Jesus being able to do everything. With God, all things are possible. Let's see what else we have. Now this one you might think is impossible. I have a whole bunch of nails here. I am going to lay out eight nails and if you could think you think you can balance these eight nails on top of this? Yeah. I saw it done before at my school. My classmate did it. Okay. But I didn't really see how he did it. That didn't work. That doesn't really uh -huh. work, does it? Well, I know that if you put it in a certain well, order... Well, how about if we like set it on top here like this? You think we can get one on top? Just one, but not one. Well, that yeah, doesn't even work, does it? I know, I know, work I know how to. It Should I help you? Here. Something like this and then this. Like you want to step to the side a little bit? So let's push this front and then you can step to the side so that you can... The other side. How about you stand over here? <coughs> so, we're going to put the nails on top. And we put another one on top here. I should have. Should have gotten a little bit bigger nails. Adrian did it with way smaller nails. <laughs> there you go. That's what I was trying to do. <laughs> so, with a little bit of creativity, we can do it, right? <coughs> so, this is all to show you or to help you think about how you can take something that looks impossible and with God's help and the Holy Spirit, you can make it possible. Then all of a sudden it does look possible, right? In the Bible, what are some of the things that Jesus did that appeared impossible? Yes. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Yeah, that's one of the impossible things that God did. What else did he do? Yes? 
you know, the blind man fed 5,000, just, just the list goes on and on, right? Yes. He even turned water into wine. Turned water into wine. He's just sitting and handing it out. Yep. The wine. Mm -hmm. The best wine. Do you remember what Dean was talking about earlier this week? Yes. He what? He's trying to say what I said. Like he turned water into wine. Do you remember what Dean was talking about the other night? About our conscience? And what can help us to know, or how the Holy Spirit speaks through our conscious conscience, right? So if we think that maybe something we shouldn't do, maybe it's the Holy Spirit talking to us. And maybe if we don't want to do our chores and we say, I can't do that, how can we do it? With the Holy Spirit, right? God can help us. God will help us. He has promised to help us if we ask him. So one more verse that I have for you. And that is in John 14, 26. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Let's trust in God. Thank you. You may return to your seats. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Lavelle, for giving us a lot more things to think about. I think we have been blessed this week with a lot of good information, good uh, biblical teaching, and I'm just excited that I think if we put these things to practice, if we, the children's lessons and what, what we've been taught, it should change us. It should make us better people. I trust as Christians we want to change and become better people, and I, I'm sure that is the Lord's goal for us, and I hope that is our goal from within. So again, thank you for coming. This is the final evening. Um, thank you for being uh, diligent throughout the week. Uh, there's a lot of things going on. Your children are in school and things like that. So uh, thank you for coming back each evening. Uh, I did want to mention that if somebody does want to add to the uh, offering from last evening, that is still open. So you're welcome to add to that if you'd like. Uh, just see that I get it or see that uh, Virgil gets it. And uh, we'll add that to, to Dean's um, gift, the love offering that we took last evening. So with that, I think I'll have you come forward. God bless you as you speak again. D Dean Taylor is from Holmes County, Ohio. And after the prayer, if you would just uh, come down, then I'll close the meeting. Okay. Okay? All right. Thanks. All right. Well, good evening. Um, it's also always good to see these different devotionals, and I, <laughs> I do love the children's classes. Now that I'm a grandpa, there's a certain uh, um, more appreciation for it. Oh, did I leave my clicker there again, Tanya? Oh, thank you. <clears throat> thank you. 
Okay, today we're going to look at the last of the topics is kingdom building. And we're going to be looking at some things, some, uh, some very important principles on how we do evangelism or missions. And the idea here is to make the analogy of how it is um, in a military setting as compared to what the church does. One of the elements that I would like to bring out is the place of the church in evangelism and mission, which I think is both New Testament, early church, and Anabaptist. And I think it's a very important thing, and it ties into this kind of a sense of a band of brothers or uh, a, various, a very um, tight-knit platoon or something, as the military would see it. And that's going to be the analogy and the comparison that I make throughout the night. Um, so let's start with a word of prayer, and let's look at these things. Dear Heavenly Father, we know that you have given us these incredible directions, amazing directives and commands that you want us to fulfill in our lifetime. And so, Lord, we just pray for grace. We pray for the Holy Spirit to put them into practice. So, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to lift up these scriptures and these principles and allow um, us to fulfill these things to give you the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Okay, so let's look at this. So the scripture that we're going to be uh, kind of forming the whole night with is, is found in Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. The idea that God gave us the, the church and to, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom is a, as a continual commission that he's, he's asked the church to fulfill. Um, when we don't fulfill that purpose, when we begin to get complacent, when we, when we get involved with our own lives and things, we're not fulfilling the purpose that God gave us, and we tend to kind of just get into trouble. Um, one of my favorite uh, historic letters is a very pointed letter written by Martin Luther King Jr. back in 1963. He was working in Birmingham, Alabama, or out there working with the different um, things that were happening, and he wrote a letter when he was arrested and put in jail. Now, usually his things that he would write against politics, I have a little differences of how you do the politics, but this particular letter he wrote to the church because the church was kind of upsetting things, and he was looking at the church, and as a minister, he wrote a rebuke to the church. So it's become my, one of my favorite ones, of course, from, from him, but also I think it's very pointed. He was arrested. That's the actual picture from him being arrested and put in jail, and he gathers up a bunch of newspapers and things and got a pencil and wrote this letter, and then it was published in the newspaper, a letter from Birmingham jail, and it reads like this. In great disappointment, I have wept over the laxity of the church. But be assured that my tears have been the tears of love. There can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. Yes, I love the church. How could I do otherwise? I am in a rather unique position of being the son, the grandson, and the great-grandson of preachers. Yes, I see the church as the body of Christ. But oh... How we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect and through fear of being nonconformist. And this, I love this analogy he makes. 
There was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the morays of society. Do you catch his analogy? So a thermometer, if it's cold outside, the thermometer's going to say cold. If it's hot outside, it's going to say hot. But he said that in the early Christians... They set the thermometer, the, the thermostat rather, and, and that caused a to turn hot. And so that's the, uh, the analogy that he's given that, that, that he feels is being lost in the church. I'll keep going. Whenever the early church entered a town, he goes on to say, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were, listen to this, a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiator contest. Well, things are different now. Things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. But he says this, But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before, he wrote in 1963. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. There's a very pointed letter, and he brings up some very good points. Shane Claiborne, a uh, uh, guy in Philadelphia, works with the inner city people. He put it this way, and he looked at how the social club, the sort of just niceties of the church is, and he puts it this way. He says, I am convinced... If we lose kids to the culture of drugs and materialism, of violence and war, it's because we don't dare them, not because we don't entertain them. It's because we make the gospel too easy, not because we make it too difficult. Kids want to do something heroic with their lives, which is why they play video games and join the army. But what are they to do with a church that teaches them to tiptoe through life so they can arrive safely at death. And again, another very pointed question. This is sort of the attitude, these positive parts of these, what they're holding up, were the attitudes that the early Anabaptists would have had. And too often we get more into this social club or making things too nice and these types of a thing, and it affects us. So what does the Scripture say? A phrase that I picked up from Hudson Taylor III is this, no go 
no low. As a principle that goes to our church taken from the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And you'll see where I mean by this. So the Great Commission, Jesus is finally finishing up his work, about to be resurrected. We're almost going into the book of Acts. And he says this, and then you know this commission well, but hear it again tonight. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. (laughs) But some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." Praise God. The Many times as we get ourselves into a rut in, in the church life, as we say, well, we're not quite ready for uh, evangelism. We're not quite ready for to going out and to fulfill these things. When we get ready as a church, then we'll do that. That's kind of a common thing. But Jesus put it the other way. Go and lo, I'll be with you. And as Hudson Taylor III said, the great-grandson our great-grandson of Hudson Taylor, no go, you can't expect the low. No go, no low. And so the idea that we want the presence of God, we want this purpose and and this Holy Spirit presence in the church, this is a command of Jesus. Now, we're a people that believe in the teachings of Jesus, amen? It's, and it's good that we do. We have a Christocentric Christianity. We ask the question and we answer it positively. What if Jesus really meant every word he said? And we say, amen, he does. And so praise God. I want to fellowship with churches who, who are strong on marriage, who, who uh, believe in the teachings of Jesus on divorce, uh, on lawsuits, and we obey these things, on radical use of our money, on seeking first the kingdom of God, on loving our enemies, seeming an impossible thing through history, but we believe in this. And what about this one? <laughs> Go. You see, there's no difference. The commands of Jesus are the commands of Jesus, and it's pretty hypocritical of us if we're going to criticize different churches who, who've lost divorce, who never, or never did believe it, divorce from marriage or warfare or, or all these types of things, and we don't follow that little command. And if we don't, we get this, no go, no low. But yet, we know these passages, and why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? I love being in churches. I'm only going to be in churches that hold to these Jesus teachings, but I face these, but they're hard. I will say this, not like you can just, you know, check a box and then suddenly you're in them. The call of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and all his teachings is a constant life. I've never found myself at the point where I'm like, okay, I got this. No, it's, it's constantly drawing us further and further. So let's look at this passage, these passages of, of um, the gospel of the kingdom. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So in the early church, after Jesus taught his, his, um, 
disciples and his teachings and, and all the different things, and we move into the book of Acts. And there's an interesting promise that we get right there at the beginning of, of the book of Acts. We know it very well, but let me give it to you. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witness in, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. I was reading a book a few years ago, and he brings up a very interesting point about that, a very interesting point. And he says this. He says, recent generations, especially in some sectors of the church, have majored on that first promise, and you shall receive power, this idea of the, of the uh, Holy Spirit power in the church and all the gifts and things that come with that. He said, many have majored on the first promise. Some have emphasized with good reasons the promise of the power of the Holy Spirit and have developed teachings and impartations around this theme. But Jesus gave a second promise in Acts 1.8, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he makes a significant point here. He says... Whether he's right or wrong, it's an interesting point, and this is Ross Peterson in The Antioch Factor. He says, the second promise is more significant than it is at first obvious. It seems to be a general statement about evangelism and mission, and indeed it is that, but it is more than that. It actually states that the validating test, watch this, it actually states that the validating test of any visitation and experience of the Spirit of God is whether or not we go out and testify for Jesus and whether or not our perimeters for doing that includes the ends of the earth, the people who are as yet totally unreached with the gospel. So the ultimate test of genuine Holy Spirit activity, according to Ross Peterson here, is our lives is not to be defined in terms of gifts or experiences, it is in terms of specific obedience, the kind that leads us ever outward in surrender to the Great Commission. Now, we're a church here tonight that believes in obedience, and particularly the obedience of the teachings of Jesus. So he's hitting hard on us. This is the teaching of Jesus, and we have to kind of incorporate it into our ways of thinking and not just uh, explain it away. Now, the whole point of the book is that the Antioch had to answer what Jerusalem was not doing, and it's an interesting point. I want you to get what he's saying here. This is Bible school. We're learning something here. He says this. When he's talking about Jerusalem not fulfilling that, that purpose, he says it was not a failed or failing church. It was a highly successful in the best and purest sense of the word, and yet the Jerusalem church missed the God's main agenda. At the beginning of the book of Acts, that agenda was laid out, but you shall receive power from the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and into all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. The reason for the birth of the Jerusalem church, according to this scripture, was that it might not stop reproducing until it had reached to the ends of the earth with its testimony to Jesus. That is why Jesus spoke Acts 1.8 into the very moment of its birth. But He says, 
and let's consider this. But Jesus did not obey, excuse me, excuse me. But Jerusalem did not obey Jesus in this matter. Therefore, another church, the Antioch church, had to be raised up to do that work. There was no excuse for the early church any more than there is for us today. Jesus has made his plans clear throughout his ministry on earth. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to the nations, and then the end will come. And so this idea that that we have all these teachings of Jesus, we have these people of God with this purpose, with this direction, we have this commission, we have the Holy Spirit, and all those things. And if you look through history, churches that have just believed those things and take them, it's like, it's like just everything starts to click. Everything starts to click. And I'll show you some examples even from our Anabaptist heritage. Let me give you an example. So first baptism was around January of, of 1525. Things were in prison and all that, and they really started getting going about two years later in 1527, and that was some year. So in January the 5th of 1527, Felix Mons was martyred, uh, drowned in the Lamont River in Zurich. On February, um, Michael Sattler and many of the other early Anabaptists were up in Schleidheim, and they had a confession. They're not getting into a bunch of theological debates, but just a simple brotherhood agreement to organize them to get busy. He was then killed, Michael Sattler, on May and 21st. By August of that same year, they met with 60 ministers from around the country. Now, we just started with three here. We're all the way up to 60 ministers now here, came together to divide up the country and to think of a mission um, ideas of how they were going to do this. Now, it's interesting. It's found in the court records that two weeks later, after August the 20th, and they had their different commission, people were being arrested for putting this into practice. <laughs> I think of how we have mission conferences today, and you're like, oh, that was a real good blessing. We were real challenged. You know what I mean? Two weeks later, these guys were going to jail for it. But by the end of, of 1527, there was an opening to go to Moravia, and the amount of people that started with three and to 60, by the time you got to the end of 1527, 12,500 people were giving up their farms and things and moving to, and to Moravia. True story. And that spirit was something that's built in. And here's the reason. You see, just like they had the Sermon on the Mount teachings on marriage and, and war and all these things, the command was there. You can't separate it. Look at the way Minnow Simons used, talked about it. He put it this way. He says, Therefore we preach, as much as is possible, both by day and by night, in houses and in fields, in forest and waste, hither and yon, at home or abroad, in prisons or in dungeons, in water and in fire, on the scaffold and on the wheel, the torture wheel, before lords and princes through mouth and pen, with possessions and with blood, with life and death. We could wish that we might save all mankind from the jaws of hell, free them from the chains of their sins, and by the gracious help of God, add them to Christ by the gospel of his peace. For this, watch now, for this is the true nature of the love which is of God. Amazing how this was so much part of it. The ladies, too, everybody was involved with this just sense of being able to share this kingdom and this advancement of, of kingdom building. 
uh, from the Martyr's Mirror, one of the friends of an Anabaptist, a widow who was about to be burnt to death in The Hague in 1527, pled with this Anabaptist lady saying, Dear Mother, can you not just think what you want and keep all this stuff to yourself? Why do you keep talking to people? Then you won't die. And watch her response. It's important. Dear sister, I am commanded to speak and am constrained to do so. Hence, I cannot remain silent about it. It's a command of Christ. It's part of the package. We're people who believe in the teachings of Jesus. And that's why we have that. I love this one. In Württemberg, they found the court records of government records. And, and the government's decisions that the, listen to this, I love this, that the propaganda activity of the Anabaptist women through word of mouth and through booklets, they were passing out little tracts, were so grievous that those mothers who could not be banished because of their little children must be chained at home to prevent their leading so many people astray. Amen. So these little ladies who were going to get to the, to the mill or going to get milk, or I don't know, I guess they had cows for milk, but whatever they were doing, as they were doing that, they were sharing and talking, even though they got them killed with little booklets or whatever it meant, and it was just part of it. The, war, the world was beginning to go crazy in those days. Finally, the Protestants, the Catholics were... were firing against each other and killing each other. But during this time, different groups of the Swiss Brethren and the different people in Holland and the Hutterites were just starting to continue to share. As a matter of fact, right during terrible places, during these same years of the Thirty Years' War, the Hutterites planted a hundred communities across the country. As I was reading through the ancient chronicles one day, I came across this right during the beginning of the Thirty Years' War, and... And I read this, 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 this entry in the diary that just made me just, wow, what have we lost? He's talking about, he says, this year too, meaning this is the way we're always done it. This is just the way we, you know, do it. But this year too, we follow the example of our forefathers by sending out several brothers to various places in Germany. They went to seek those on fire for the truth and to call people to repentance. It amazed many people in Bohemia where both hostile armies, the Protestant and Catholics, were encamped, as well as in Germany, that our defenseless members sit out during a time of such terrible danger when scarcely anyone, whether of high or low estate, could travel in safety. But the Lord was their protector, and they relied on Him alone. When their task was complete through the intercession of His people, He led them home again." I found in a scholarly article that uh, somebody had dug out an ancient Anabaptist um, mission hymn, from the, actually from the early uh, Hutterites here. Just listen to the words of this. As God his son was sending into the world of sin, his son is now commanding that we this world should win. He sends us and commissions to preach the gospel clear to call upon all nations to listen and to hear. To thee, O God, we're praying. We're bent to do thy will. Thy word we are obeying. To God we fulfill. All people we are telling to mend their sinful ways that they might cease rebelling, lest judgment be their pay. And if thou, Lord, desire, and should it be thy will, that we taste sword and fire, 
by those whose thus would kill. Thy co- then comfort pray our loved ones and tell them we've endured, and we shall see them yonder eternally secure. Thy word, O Lord, does teach us, and we do understand. Thy promises are with us until the very end. Thou hast prepared a haven. Praise be thy holy name. We loud thee, God of heaven, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amazing. Did you catch the command and things? And this just this wasn't just them. We have more records because of this ancient chronicles that's been discovered. The Swiss brethren were like this. The different groups were like this. And it's, where is it today? When I uh, went out to um, South Dakota, this was in 2012, I had a chance to, to go to this Bonham colony, and I, I've heard that, that the bishop kept the ancient chronicles in this wooden box under his bed. <laughs> and so I had a chance to go there, and I said, hey, I would love it if I could see the ancient chronicles. And sure enough, he goes back there under his bed, pulls out the box, puts it on there, and I open it up. I took this picture. And so it was a lot of fun, and I was looking through it, and the one thing that I wanted to see was the table of martyrs. So in the English, you have it. In the German version, you have it. And I just wanted to see, is it like it is in the, you know, the translation? And, and this is what I saw. I took, I took this picture. So in the English, it goes right from different towns. These are different districts in Austria and Germany where, where how many martyrs were killed for each town. 30, 10, 4, 3, 10, 1, 8. In the English, there's no gaps. It just goes, you know, and in the German, there's no gaps. And so I was, this is the original, and I was looking at it, and I said, oh, that's interesting. And these are like passages of go out for like lambs to the slaughter and, and these types of things. And I got to this page, and it was all blank. So I looked over at the bishop, and I said, what's with the blank pages? And he said, yeah, I've never noticed that before. And I said, I think I know what it's about. It's kind of like that section in your Bible for weddings and baptisms and such. They made it so that future martyrs could be written in there. That was the mindset. We're going to leave a few blank pages for the next group. You know what I mean? There's no longer martyrs. You know, Jesus said, uh, or we're told in scriptures that all who, all who live righteously will be persecuted. And so you think about this, and you, and you think about these, these different um, attitudes, and how far have we come from this? Jerusalem did not obey Jesus in this matter, he says, Ross Peterson again. Therefore, another church, the Antioch church, has to be raised up to do that. God wants to give us gifts and talents to the church. He prepares a generation, and he wants to do that. He pours out gifts and talents. If we don't use that, the Scripture says that he will take it and give it to someone else. He will take it and give it to someone else. But that attitude of a church on the move, a militant with a purpose um, just gets a hold of me. Now, bringing in our military analogy again, a few years ago, I ran into this TED Talk. Have you ever listened to a TED Talk? By Sebastian Younger. And it caught my attention. It says, why veterans miss war? And I said, oh, I listened to it. I got to the end of it, and I started crying. And in, nowadays, it has, I just checked this just before the message, 22.4 million people had, uh, oh, that's subscribers, wow, I don't even know how many views, um, had looked at that. And so as, as I go through this, I'm going to read this to you because I think I want you to take his analogy 
that he talks about war, and I want us to apply it to the church. And what's inside of, I, I think that, you see, I believe that God has given us this patriotism, this nationalism, this zealous thing inside the human, but he wants to sanctify it for Christ and Christ alone, not the nations of this world and not the agendas of this world, but for Christ. So listen to what he says, and I'm going to read it to you, and listen and apply it to the Scripture. All right, let's go. Let's look at it. I'm going to try, I'm going to ask and try, I'm going to ask and try to answer in some ways a kind of uncomfortable question. Both civilians and obviously and soldiers suffer in war. I don't think any civilian has ever missed the war that they were subjected to. I've been covering, he's a war reporter. He actually goes to there, he's in the war and he's a reporter for the war. I've been covering war for almost 20 years and there's one, one of the remarkable things for me is how many soldiers find themselves missing it. How is it that someone can go through the worst experiences imaginable and come home, back to their home, to their family, their country, and miss the war? How does that work? What does it mean? When we have, we have to answer that question because if we don't, listen to this, it'll be impossible to bring soldiers back to a place in society where they belong, and I think it'll also be impossible to stop war if we don't understand how that mechanism works. Any sane person hates war, hates the idea of war, wouldn't want to have anything to do with it, doesn't want to be near it, doesn't want to know about it. That's the sane person's response to war. But I, if I ask all of you in this room, how many of you, hopefully not here, <laughs> how many of you have paid money to go to a cinema and to be entertained by a Hollywood war movie? Probably most of you would raise your hand. And although maybe you haven't done that, but, but I, I would venture to say that most of you probably have watched one in some place or another. Now, that's what's so complicated about war. And trust me, if a room full of peace-loving people finds something compelling about war, so do 20-year-old soldiers who have been trained in it. I promise you, that's the thing that has to be understood. One of my friends, and she knew how bad it had been out there, she met with one of uh, her friends who was just totally messed up. And she said, Brandon, is there anything at all that you miss about being in Afghanistan about the war? He thought for a minute, quite a long time, and finally said, ma'am, I miss almost all of it. And he's one of the most traumatized people I've, I've ever seen from that war. He said, ma'am, I miss almost all of it. What is he talking about? He's not a psychopath. He doesn't miss killing people. He's not crazy. He doesn't miss getting shot at and seeing his friends get killed. So what is it that he's missing? You see, we have to answer that. If we're going to stop war, we have to answer that question. Here's what he says. I think what he misses is brotherhood. He misses in some way the opposite of killing. What he misses was connection to the other men he was with. Now, brotherhood is different from friendship. Friendship happens in society, obviously. The more you like someone, the more you'd be willing to do something for them. But brotherhood has nothing to do with how you feel about the other person. It's a mutual agreement in a group that you will put the welfare of the group 
you will put the safety of everyone in the group above your own. In effect, you're saying, I love these people more than I love myself. You think about these soldiers having an experience like that, a bond like that in a small group where they're loved 20 other people in some ways more than they love themselves. You think about how good that would feel. Imagine it. And they are blessed with that experience for a year, and then they come home, and they are just back in society like the rest of us, not knowing who they can count on, not knowing who loves them, who they can love, not knowing exactly what anyone they know would do for them if it came down to it. That is terrifying, he says. Compared to that, War, psychologically, in some ways, is easy compared to that kind of alienation. That's why they miss it. And that's why we have to understand, in some ways, to fix in our society. Profound, isn't it? I watched that, and I just, I wept. Because that's the passion that I have for the church. That we have this kind of brotherhood. That we have this kind of trusting and love that goes beyond just casual friendships, that's the way that I think the Holy Spirit wants the church to be. An early missionary um, uh, from the turn of the century, of the 20th century, uh, early 1900s, who wrote about um, missionary methods in this book, Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Ours, Roland Allen, has a very interesting talk about how church life should be in the kingdom building. And this is the concept that I I want you to to gather uh, mostly here. He says, we cannot but recognize, when he talks about the comparison of St. Paul's method with our method, we cannot but recognize that everywhere we have established missions, and missions are not churches. If we establish missions instead of establishing churches, it is because we differ from the apostles and the early church in principle and in spirit. And then he says this, everywhere we have churches without missions, and everywhere else we have missions without churches. And it shouldn't be that way. So this is the part that's really, I think, exciting for us as we think of kingdom building, either in the mission or in different things. It's not just individuals being sent out and doing individual things. The idea is that we as a church go and do these things. I ran across also this other writing by Dave Harvey. He's the president of the Great Commission Collective at Westminster Theological Seminary. And he brings up an interesting point, too, in criticism of his own fellow evangelicals. And he says, sad to say, Christians in Western culture, with its emphasis on individual vision and personal spirituality, often erase the local church factor from the question. And they come up with this. The gospel plus the commissioned individual, let's send out John and Betty and Jack, and equals world evangelism. And he says there's something missing here if we really study the, the Scriptures properly. And he says it should, the New Testament application of the Great Commission should therefore look like this. The gospel, the commissioned individual, the local church community, and world evangel- evangelization. And that's a quality that the Anabaptists have had since the beginning. Uh, there's other writers that just speak of it. Actually, Zwingli was the one who kind of confused this in the, in the Reformed tradition. And, and so we don't need to copy faulty methods, 
But embrace this concept of the church, the people of God, the band of brother in our evangelism. It's churches being planted in both home and in abroad, and doing that actively and, and going forth. Historic examples. I mean, what's the church's alternative to the band of brothers? This idea of these, these soldiers who band together to do these things. And there's been some significant examples. But who's this? Anybody know? Ah, good. Nate Saint and Jim Elliott. Very good. Um, they were, you talk about, you hear their camaraderie, and they're coming together, and it's amazing the kind of things that they accomplished. Another one. Anyone know who these? This is a little bit harder one. Uh, this is the Cambridge Seven, um, and this is the, uh, um, it's, uh, it, the, the, this, the idea, this one was a cricket, a famous cricket player, uh, which would have been like their equivalent, you know, like a baseball, C.T. Studd, and he was, had a chance of a very uh, lucrative profession, met with these guys at Cambridge, they got excited, they bound together, and they went into the mission field and did an incredible way. He has some very challenging quotes. Some of my, some of my favorite is this, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Another quote that he has is, some will live within the sound of the church or chapel bell, I want to run a rescue shop within the yard of hell. So, understanding this gospel of the kingdom. Now, how does all this evangelism, and I talked about politics this week, I talked about separation, we talked about the Jesus teachings, how does all of this, what is the gospel of the kingdom when we do kingdom building? And there's a principle that I want to give to you that I think will bring it all together, a theological point. This is Bible school, and I want you to catch this point because I think it's important. It's actually, I found it well said in John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad. And he says this, catch his point, it's important for us. Don't preach a gospel that ignores the shift from a come-see religion in the Old Testament to a go-and-tell religion in the New Testament. So, he's going to back it up. So, it went from, we're having a covenant, a covenant change, from the old covenant to the new covenant. And he says that, that this changes everything that it used to be, come and see, that then get changed to go and tell. Uh, and here he explains that. Ah, sorry. He said, a fundamental change happened with the coming of Christ into the world. Until that time, God had focused his redemptive work on Israel with occasional works among the nations. Now, though, the focus has shifted from Israel to the nations. Jesus said the kingdom of God will be taken from you, Israel, and given to the people producing its fruit. He goes on, one of the main differences between these two eras in the Old Testament, God glorified himself largely by blessing Israel so that the nations could see and know that the Lord is God. Israel was not yet sent on the Great Commission to gather the nations. Rather, she was glorified so that the nations would see her greatness and come to her. In other words, the pattern of the Old Testament, it's a really important point, the pattern of the Old Testament is a come-see religion in the Old Covenant. 
There is a geographic center of the people of God. There's a physical temple, an earthly king, a political regime, an ethnic identity, an army to fight God's earthly battles, and a band of priests to make animal sacrifices for sins. With the coming of Christ, all of that changed. And do you see how messed up it is now when you confuse politics into this new kingdom? And you start getting involved with militaries and things and all that. We have a distinct change in the very nature of how God is glorified in the nations. But he goes on to say, there is no geographic center for Christianity. Jesus has replaced the temple, the priest, and the sacrifices. There is no Christian political regime because Christ's kingdom is not of this world. And we do not fight earthly battles with chariots and horses or bombs and bullets, but spiritual ones with the word of the Spirit. All of this supports the great change in missions. This, the implications of this are huge for the way we live and the way we think about money and lifestyle one of the main implications is that we are sojourners and exiles on this earth. We do not use the world as, as though it were our primary home. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this leads us to a wartime lifestyle. He says, so, so he goes on and he explains, so we don't get into just you know, lavishing ourselves with our bank accounts and our vacations and our things like this, that the purpose behind our life as soldiers is to give glory to God by taking this beautiful treasure to the nations. To the nations. It's, it's amazing uh, what he asked here. The Scriptures. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. And so I look at this, and the, the Isaiah passage, uh, just read the beginning of this, and it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. And many people shall come and say, let us go into the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. I'll go ahead. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation and neither shall they uh, learn war anymore. And then we have this building of Isaiah. The people that walk in darkness have seen a great light. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Watch this. When he comes, of the in and he did come, this meaning of his, his first coming there, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth forever, the zeal of the Lord will perform this. Hallelujah. You know, I was quoting, you remember John D. Martin was coming here, and he, I, he heard me quoting this passage uh, from, the, from the sermon. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against it. 
He said he was talking to a rabbi once. He said, you know, it matters a lot where you move the comma. There's no comma in the original, of course, so we have to put it in. And this other, he said he read it this way, and he said it changes the way he, he looked at things. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Praise God. That's the attitude the church should have. All right, I'm almost done here. In basic training, <laughs> unfortunately, I never had this experience, but in basic training, one of the scariest things I remember as a young man hearing was what to do with an ambush. An ambush, you're walking along the trail, you know, you're, you're there, and all of a sudden, these guys are all lined up ready to kill you. You most likely are going to die. There's not much chance you're going to live, they tell you. But there's just one possibility. What usually happens, of course, we all start running and screaming and, and trying to get out of there to save your life because you were surprised, but there's only one way to possibly survive an ambush. And you know what it is? Charge them. That's the only way. If you run, they run out, they shoot you. But if you can charge them, you then cause that to be broken up and you have a chance of winning. That's the attitude. The enemy shall come in like a, like a flood. The Lord will raise up a standard against it. All right, last quote of the week. I know a school teacher. Who's the school teachers? Who's school teachers here? All right, school teachers. All right. Young early Anabaptist school teacher Hieronius Calls was um, going out into the mission field. He was captured, and he wrote a letter back to his community, and he said this. I'll read you this quote, and then we'll end. Think about this. He wrote this in like 1530. He says, Many in our time think the opposition has ended. They look back and think the war is over, but they're deceived. If they would live the life, they would get persecuted again. As long as the lion has its cub with him, he might act friendly and playful enough. But when he loses his little ones or his prey, he cannot keep himself back. He rages and roars. He rants and he raves as only lions can until fire shoots from his eyes. Certainly Peter does not warn us in vain that Satan comes upon us like a roaring lion or a wolf at nightfall. But may God be praised. The lion of the tribe of Judah is bigger and stronger than the lion of the Philistines. He has already split the other lion's head and wounded his body. Therefore, he knows that his time is short and he will soon be overcome. Therefore, he is so desperate, so angry, he sees the lake of fire into which he will be thrown. Watch, therefore, watch yourselves, therefore, heroes of Israel. Take courage, strong men of Zion. Imagine this letter that's going to the community. Rejoice, O city of Jerusalem. The time of your triumph is near. All tears will be washed from your eyes. The reward of your labor stands ready. Just hold on a little while longer. The fat cattle have already been butchered. The fowls have all been plucked. The table stand ready, and the guests have begun to arrive. Hallelujah. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for 
this commission. And I thank you that you promised us that along with the commission that you would give us the Holy Spirit as, a, as, a, as, as your presence to put it through. So God, just give us wisdom on how to do this in this age and this generation and show us your way that you would be glorified. Father, we ask this and help us, and I bless this time that we've had here come together. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so I will hand it over to Alfie. Okay, thank you, brother. Well, I feel like we've been instructed very well this week. Thank you, Dean, for coming. Thank you for being the mouthpiece of Jesus. And uh, I'm certain that the Holy Spirit will even continue to show us things that we can change and become a better people. So thank you for coming. We really appreciate it. Thank you for coming with him, Tanya. We appreciate your presence here. And God has been good to us. And I also want to thank all the brothers that uh, took part in the children's class and, and the um, opening each evening. It was really a blessing. So um, I think we'll um, adjourn with that. I do want to mention one thing for the home church. Uh, this was a little different format this year for Bible school, and we do really welcome your input and how we will go forward the next couple of years and uh, maybe just a little bit different than what, we're, what we were used to uh, previously in our Bible schools, in our winter Bible school. So anything else, Virgil? Okay. I think we will stand, and would you lead us in another song, and then you can consider yourself dismissed. Will you stand with me?